Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're joining us for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. So as an example, a sign in a Paris hotel wanted to say, uh, please leave your valuables at the front desk. And instead, this hotel in Paris had a sign in English that said, please leave your values at the front desk. <laughs> not quite accurate. So today's guest is Linda Lysakowski, who is a consultant to nonprofits. And it's important to emphasize that nonprofits are businesses with the same issues as for-profit firms. The main differences are their social mission, their tax status, and how their revenues must be spent. But overseas challenges are still the same. Linda is, over, Linda is one of just over 100 professionals worldwide to hold the designation ACFRE, Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive. She has helped nonprofits raise more than $50 million and has trained more than 50,000 development professionals worldwide. She has 15 online courses on all aspects of fundraising, is the author of more than three dozen books, and is currently working with a colleague in the Netherlands on a book on global fundraising in Europe and the USA. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive in, could you perhaps please explain a bit about your own background um, and your professional background and how you grew up and uh, how you got into international fundraising? Okay, well, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I spent the first part of my career was raising a family. I have a very large family five children, nine grandchildren, 14 great-grandchildren, and one wow. great-great-grandchild wow. who are coming from very different cultures. I have a whole bunch of great-grandchildren that are out of the 14. I believe only 10 of them are, three of them are Caucasian. The rest wow. are multicultural. But um, I was a banker then after I raise my children. I was in banking for 11 years. And then I discovered fundraising that people actually got paid to do this. And I thought, oh, here's a career for me. I've been doing it as a volunteer for a long time. So I worked for a university and in a museum. And then I started my own consulting business because I really wanted to help emerging organizations, which is always the most challenging thing to do. Um, trying to get emerging organizations, whether they're U.S.-based or foreign-based, to get them really set up with the infrastructure that they need to succeed. And as you said, the difference in a nonprofit is, first of all, that they need to raise money. That's one big difference. Businesses need to raise money, but it's usually investing or, or they're selling a product or a service where nonprofits really need to raise money from funders who have a philanthropic bent and they really want to support a nonprofit. And the other big difference with businesses and nonprofits, I think, or 
that the board of directors plays a very different role in a nonprofit than a board of directors in a big corporation would play. So those are two of the challenges that I think nonprofits, both here and abroad, that are just getting started need to raise money and need to build their boards and build an infrastructure. And I'm now based, by the way, in Nevada. I'm in Boulder City, Nevada, which is the home of Hoover Dam. If people have visited the Hoover Dam, they probably drove right close to my house. <laughs> Fascinating. That's great. But you, you're from Reading, Pennsylvania? I am, yes. I am from yeah. Reading, Pennsylvania. lived there all my life. And instead of my children leaving home, my husband and I decided, he wanted, <laughs> my late husband, he wanted to retire early. And so we picked up and moved across the country, and we love it here in the desert. <laughs> I love it here now. He's gone, but I love it in the desert. It's wonderful. What a great, great background, great story. Um, and I lived in a small town near Reading for a few years, so that was fun too. Oh. Um, so tell us a bit about um, different uh, fundraising and how it's done internationally. Okay, well, one of the things that I found out in my first international trip, other than trips to Canada, which are almost, it's Canada is almost like the United States, but my first trip abroad was actually to England to speak at a conference, and I got my husband to go along. He never wanted to do international travel, but I got him to go along because he said, well, they speak English there, but of course, the Queen's English and our English are two different things. And when we got into the uh, hotel and they told us where to get the lift, my husband's like, what are they talking about? So even though it's a English speaking country, sometimes the English is slightly different than ours. Um, but one of the things I found that was different in European fundraising from American fundraising, and I found this also working in Mexico, that um, and I'm not sure if they still do a lot of this, but I know that one of the clients I worked with in Mexico did a very successful door-to-door -door fundraising campaign. And in the U.S., I think that kind of thing just has gone by the wayside. I think when people knew their neighbors and you hmm. would go knock on neighbors' doors, it would be successful. I know I did it years ago for the Heart Association um, but now I think that's not very acceptable in this country, but I think Europeans have a different outlook on life than we do. And mm. so they do succeed with some door-to-door -door fundraising. So that's one thing that I found very different. Um, the other thing that I found is a lot of emerging nonprofits. And I get a lot of contacts and calls from organizations based in Africa and they all seem to, and sometimes US-based nonprofits do the same thing. They seem to think that all they have to do is have a good case for support and they'll be able to get grants without any history. And they don't understand how US foundations work. That most of them will want to see two or three years of audited financial statements. And when you're emerging, it's very tough to raise money from foundations. So I think that's one of the things that I try to educate some of the foreign-based nonprofits on is that they need to build their infrastructure. They need to build a board. They need to get their board to support them and to find 
individuals that will support their cause so they can establish a nonprofit. And then once they're established and up and running, then they can apply for grants. But I, it's, it's frustrating to me because I want so much to help these organizations that are just getting started, but some of them just don't seem to understand how it really works. <laughs> Very true. You know, on the subject of the door to door, you know, when I was a kid, we did trick or treat for UNICEF. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and Halloween, we, we all had UNICEF boxes and, you know, so you got candy and you also got dimes and quarters and beyond <laughs> uh, for UNICEF. So that was certainly wonderful. And I remember that my mother um, went door to door for a group called March of Dimes. And I don't know oh, yeah. this. Um, that was certainly big when I was a child as well. I guess I, I did that too. And um, I think I, I believe it was March of Dimes that used to sell blue plastic lapel pins that were an Easter lily. And they always went out in spring and um, said, you know, and I did that as a teenager. I think a lot of the teenagers did it because they got a day off of school. But I actually enjoyed standing outside a grocery store asking people to contribute to March of Dimes. And then they would get a, a little, little Easter lily pin to put on to show that they had supported it. Um, but you see some of that today with the veterans groups, I think, selling poppies. At least they do that in my, neighbor, my neighborhood store. But... In general, I think in the U.S., people are reluctant to give to total strangers, and yes. maybe we're just less trustworthy than the rest of the world. <laughs> well, it's part of our impersonal business culture, our impersonal right. U.S. culture and business culture, right. the way it works here. Um, what about some cultural issues that you've encountered, in, specifically in terms of fundraising? Um, can you give us some examples of those? Yeah, the cultural issues in in fundraising. I, I've one of my interesting trips was my former business partner and I went to Egypt, and of course, Egypt is a predominantly Muslim country and very different culture. So we were careful to do our research before we left, and we took a supply of head coverings because we didn't want to offend um, anybody in the country. And one of the things that happened, this really doesn't have much to do with fundraising. I was there on a fundraising trip uh, doing some training for American uh, University in Cairo. And on our day off, we went to the Egyptian Museum and we came across a busload of German tourists. And I was I was actually kind of offended by the way they were dressed. It, of course, it was hot. It was July in Egypt. <laughs> July in Egypt is a lot like July in Las Vegas area. But the women were dressed in short shorts and halter tops. And I found that a little offensive. I thought, do they realize they're in a Muslim country and women cover themselves more? And we were very conscious of the clothing that we wore when we went there because we didn't want to offend anyone. Um, and then they started making fun of women wearing burqas and it really upset me and it bothered me. And I thought, when you go to another country, whether it's for business or pleasure, I think you really need to understand the culture of that country because it can be very offensive 
And I know that we had an experience. We had a guide that took us on our days off to took us to different places around Cairo. And we, of course, went into a mosque. And we, as soon as we walked in, got our head coverings out. And he said, oh, you're not required to wear head coverings because you're not Muslim, but you must take off your shoes. And so we, of course, obliged and took off our shoes before we entered the mosque. Um, but we were very sensitive about that. And some people don't understand the culture of where they're going and that maybe they're offended by some things uh, or surprised by some things or they can become offensive. So I think when you're going to a country, especially one with a very different culture, it's really important to do your research before you go so you're prepared um, to behave and dress appropriately and things like that. Um, yes, when I took my family to India, my, uh, we went into a mosque and my wife uh, just automatically put on a headscarf Mm -hmm. um, and that, and they expected it. The, the um, Muslims, uh, the, you know, the Muslim officials expected it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting that in Egypt they didn't, and in India they did. Oh, I was, I was kind of surprised because he said, "Well, you don't really have." We were. I don't think there was anybody else in the mosque at the time. It was just the two, my former business partner, also a female, and our guide. So maybe that's why he said we didn't have to worry about the head coverings, but but we brought them to make sure that we were appropriately dressed anytime we were going to be in doing something. That's very sensitive in the way one should be. Yeah. Right. Um, what other issues have you encountered in terms of uh, international fundraising, whether cultural or or business related? Well, the one of the things I I. A lot of my foreign travel has been speaking more than actually fundraising. I've worked with some international organizations doing fundraising, but a lot of that has been done virtually. But one of the stories that uh, the first time I went to Mexico, I was speaking at a conference in Mexico City, and it was a hemispheric conference. So they provided me with a headset and all the uh, participants had headsets because some spoke Spanish and some spoke Portuguese. There were people from Brazil there. And so I had the headset on and everything went fine. The presentation seemed to go fine. And at the, at the end, I said, does anybody have any questions? And so a person raised their hand and started asking me a question. And I went, oh my gosh, there's something wrong. My speaker my headphone is reading to me in Spanish. It's not. <laughs> and then what I realized what happened was she was asking her question in English. And so it translated into Spanish for me. So I was a little embarrassed because there I was, you know, trying to answer a question, not understanding a word because I do not understand or speak Spanish. Um, but we resolved it pretty quickly. I, I took off the headset and I said, oh, wait a minute, you know, we have to come up with a, a process here. If you're going to ask a question in English, hold up two fingers. If you're going to ask it in Spanish or Portuguese, hold up one finger. And that way I'll know, do I have to take my headset off so I can understand your question? So it was a little embarrassing, 
but uh, we resolved it pretty quickly and easily uh, when I realized what was happening. <laughs> but I was taken aback when I started hearing this question coming through in Spanish and didn't know what the question was at all. Absolutely. No, that was certainly very disconcerting. <laughs> you try to answer something and you can't understand a word. Right. That was... um, have you ever had to adjust um, nonprofit appeals when you when you send an appeal in the United States? Of course, you know you you obviously are um, sort of tugging at the emotions when you tell stories about you know to get an emotional reaction. Um, is it any different when you do it internationally, or is it the same method? I. In some ways, it's the same, but I think, again, knowing the culture, for instance, I had a client in Mexico, it happened to be a, a Catholic seminary, the trained priests, and we did a male appeal for them, and I know that the Spanish culture is very family-oriented, so we included a little holy card with the holy family and um, a prayer for peace among families, and we had we had written, I wrote the letter actually for the archbishop to sign, and the let, they were raising money in the United States, but they were raising it from people. We had purchased a list of Hispanic people in certain um, cities and over a certain amount of income. So we but we targeted that appeal, made it very family oriented. One of the other really funny things that happened to me during this process, though. Um, as I said, I wrote the letter, but it was signed by the archbishop, and we hired a firm, a direct mail company based in the United States, that which sent out this letter. And most of the people sent their money directly to the seminary. We had an envelope in there, but for some reason, some people sent their money to the mail house, and they sent it to me. And one day I go to my mail, and there's a, an envelope that says, Linda Lysakowski, Archbishop of Monterey. <laughs> and we all got a good laugh out of that. I said, you know, who says the Catholic Church doesn't promote women? I'm an archbishop. So. Exactly. It's good. Well, I hope I saved that. that envelope, by the way, because I just drew a lot of laughs from some of my friends. And I always, you know, tell my pastor I outrank him because I'm an archbishop. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> That's one of the funny things that happened, and I'm not sure that was a U.S.-based company that did it, and I don't know how, what made them direct it to me as Archbishop, right. but it was kind of funny. <laughs> it's great that they did. It's good to get that kind of promotion. Yeah, can pay well, so that's great. Um, when you've done fundraising for your groups in Africa, for example, uh, do you are you you raising money? from people in the developed world in the United States or in Europe? Are you also raising money in Africa among wealthy Africans? Um, well, some of, of both, but one of the international groups we worked with, they were actually based in the United States, but they were raising money for programs that mostly at that time were being conducted in Africa. They're actually an international group and they have a lot of other countries asking them to provide services though they're growing and they needed to raise more money. But one of the things that I noticed immediately when they engaged us to help them was that all their board members were in the United States. 
And I said, if you want to start raising money from the wealthy people in Africa and other countries, you need to diversify your board of directors. So they did then engage several board members from Africa, and that made their fundraising much more successful because they, people identified with them more. Did they have Black Americans on the board? No, actually, I think they were all white. Um, When they started, they did then engage an African-American woman, um, but also several Africans uh, Mm. onto their board. Very good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, of course, to make your board reflective of the people whom you're assisting. Right, right. Um, and of course, whether it's the you know corporate boards as well, should hopefully reflect reflect the diversity of the of the audience whom they're whom they're serving. Mm-hmm. Most people in this country are multicultural or diverse. So is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Well, one of the things that that I've noticed in in my international travels, whether it's for business, like I said, for business, I've been to Bermuda, I've been to Egypt, England, Canada, Mexico, and for pure pleasure, I was in Italy. Um, But one of the things that I noticed is that a lot of times Americans think that kind of we know it all, and that we're smarter or better or more advanced than other cultures. And I think this is so wrong, because Other cultures can teach us a lot. Yesterday, I was actually talking to a woman whose business took her to Japan, and I have never been to Japan, but we were talking, this group was talking about climate change and uh, the environment, and she said, the Japanese are really so much smarter than Americans. She said, they have square bathtubs to use less water, and they, on the back of their toilets, they have the sink is on top of the toilet tank so that when you wash your hands, that water then goes into the tank for the next person to use to flush. So you're getting clean water to wash your hands, but that water then goes in to flush. And so they're saving the environment much more. They're much more advanced than those things than we are. And we sometimes think we kind of know it all. (laughs) And I find that attitude, you know, sometimes that people think, oh, I'm going to this poor country. But some of those poor countries are way more advanced than we are in many, many different ways. So I think that's yes. my advice is when you're traveling, don't go there and be the ugly American. I read that book when I was a teenager <laughs> and, yeah. and it still sticks with me that a lot of times we think we're we're so advanced and we know it all. And we don't. <laughs> Especially around 4th of July. Oh, yeah. We'll say the great American, in, in sociology terms, it's called the myth. Because there's a, a story that, a, a myth is a story that you like to tell, that each country or people tells about itself. Mm-hmm. And the great American myth in this context is this is the greatest country in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking at statistics of different, many different kinds, it is certainly not. And so, you know, when you mentioned Fourth of July, it just brought to mind something else that was funny. That first time, like I said, we, I went to England and I was able to take my husband along on that trip because he said, "Oh, I'll go there because they speak English." 
But the conference was being held from July, I believe it was the second through the fifth. Yes. And my husband just unknowingly said, why on earth are they having a conference on 4th of July? And I said, hey, these are the people that we got our independence from. They don't, they don't celebrate the 4th of July. And you, know, you just instinctively think that way. It wasn't that he was being, you know, prejudiced or anything, but you know, why would they sell, have a conference on the 4th of July? <laughs> well, it's the American tourist goes to, to London and at around that time and says, and says to the, uh, to the Brits in London, so do you people have 4th of July? <laughs> the Englishman answers, of course we do. Of course we do. It's between the 3rd and the 5th. Isn't it the same way in your country? Right, very British. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's that. Thank you so much, Linda. It's a pleasure speaking with you and getting your insights and your, your wonderful experience and stories. So thank you so yeah. much for joining us. So when you're going to any foreign country, learn the culture and have fun and get to see the people. You know, don't the tourist spots are great. But one of the neat things that happened on our trip to Egypt was the last night we were there, our guide took us in his own car with his wife and kids, took us to parts of Cairo that tourists don't go to. So right. we got to see the authentic Cairo and, and see people and interact with real people. And yes. I, sometimes we just get hung up on all the touristy stuff. Absolutely. It's very, very true. Well, thank you. So this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business.